out with a, your canoe and you start with paddling, you're sitting, the sun is shining, you have the nature. Um, the peace and quiet and all the things you can do. Well, you get to roast marshmallows and hot dogs and swim. Well, I'm gonna go, baby, for he's my man. Yeah, I'm gonna go, baby, for he's my man. Hanging out down here, keeps me red all the time. And I'm gonna go, baby, for he's my man. The world becomes simpler out there. So this is going to be a great story if we live through it. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I get to see you out there. This is the Boundary Waters Podcast. Hey, I'm Bill Hansen, one of your community hosts for the Boundary Waters Podcast. This episode is built around the connection between wilderness and wolves. And it might leave you pondering how humans fit in the bigger picture when it comes to the wild places that surround us. Here, close up from, you know, just inches away, we're looking at the beautiful golden eyes of the wolf. He's alert at this point. He's just, his ears are pricked forward. He's looking right in at us. And we were just stunned because, you know, we just couldn't come up with a reasonable scenario that would bring a wolf up to our window. But first, keep it wild. Our monthly check-in with the U.S. Forest Service with some reminders for winter visitors about leave no trace best practices for when everything is covered in ice and snow. My name is Megan McClanahan. I work for the U.S. Forest Service as the Wilderness Operations Lead out of the Gunflint Ranger Station in Grand Marais. So you've issued a self-permit and you're out winter camping on a remote lake somewhere. What do you need to know in terms of the leave no trace principles in the winter, because the conditions are very different, obviously. For sure. You know, the same standard rules apply in terms of how many people can be in a group. So just remember that only nine people can be together at a time. And that includes on the ice, on a portage, on a trail or a campsite. But our durable surfaces change in the winter time. So what something that was a non-durable surface in the summer, like some of our grassy or mossy areas, you know, those things start to go dormant and then they have a big fluffy layer of snow on top of them. And then we also have the ice. So the ice becomes this other durable surface, but we still have our designated campsite that people can use if they want. But in the wintertime, you don't have to camp there. In the summertime, you do have to camp there. So that's something that's different. Um, if you're planning on just, you know, hanging out, you can do that wherever. But if you're planning on camping, you don't have to do that at a campsite. But you need to think about, okay, so if I'm not at a campsite, what's another spot that would make sense for me to camp? You know, you don't want to just go right in the middle of the lake. That's not going to protect you very, very well from the, from the wind and the snow and just privacy in general. Um, so a lot of times people will tuck themselves into a little bay, kind of like at the forest edge. But if you're going to have a fire, that's a really, really crucial thing to think about in the winter time, because a lot of times it is hard to tell between a live tree and a dead tree in the winter. And it's also hard to tell where the ice meets the land or the water meets the land. And so we, we definitely do not want to be cutting anything that's alive 
So really understand what a dead tree versus an alive tree. Think about those cedars that when they're growing from the land, a lot of them like to reach really far out over the lake and extend themselves. And then they'll kind of curve up to some folks with an untrained eye. That looks like a dead fallen tree. But cedars are this amazing tree that can do some pretty wild things for survival. And so really be observant in what you're using for firewood. Don't take or cut anything right from the shoreline. A lot of animals depend on those. A lot of the shoreline depends on that for erosion control. And then just for other visitors, you know what it feels like when you're paddling along the lake and you just see a big old cut log um, sticking out. You know, that is a visual impact that could affect the wilderness character. So think about where you're going to have your fire. If you are camped at a campsite, then you want to make sure you find the fire grate and you have to have a fire in the fire grate. If you're camped at a campsite in the winter, you also have to find the latrine. And so you just kind of look at the woods, you look for an opening and a gap in the tree line and you walk back there. A lot of times it's like a big mound of snow. So grab that shovel, shovel it out. Um, that way we're keeping the human waste consolidated in that latrine. If you're not camped at a campsite, then you want to walk 250 feet away from the water to use the restroom. I'd highly recommend packing out your toilet paper. And if you want to have a fire not associated with a campsite, the most durable spot is the ice. So make sure you're completely off of land. We know what a fire scar looks like. It can can really impact an area if it's if it's on soil or on a rock even so put it on the ice and the best practice is to make it in a fire pan i love that cedar example because yeah they do they they reach out over the the lake pretty far right do you see a lot of infractions out there that's why i highlighted those two specific ones just because they're they're different than what folks are used to in the summertime so not cutting live vegetation, don't cut pine boughs off of trees, off of balsam or pine, and then where you're going to have your fire. The other thing too is, you know, understanding where the wilderness line is. There are some lakes on the periphery of of the boundary waters that share this boundary between non-wilderness and wilderness. And so it's your responsibility to understand where that boundary is, whether that's across the lake or across land. If you if you don't know, you can always talk to us. We have maps that we can share with you. Same with those local outfitters and, and resorts and online. Um, but just make sure that you know where the wilderness line is. In, in the wintertime, we also try to put up ice signs to mark on lakes. Like for example, Clearwater Lake, we always put ice signs up there just to show where that boundary is. But as we know, Signs can fall, signs can get moved. And so even if you don't see something, but you know that that's the line, it's still, it's still the line. So, you know, just make sure you know where you are when you're out there. Great. And what should someone do if they come across a site where someone has cut live vegetation for, you know, their their winter mattress or something under their mm-hmm. sleeping bag, or there's been a fire 
lit inappropriately or what if someone you know stumbles across winter campers who left behind garbage or or Mm. waste what should people do Mm, great question i tell you what what we do and what a lot of other visitors do is um since you're there and are able to see and access that stuff before the new snow falls and covers it you know if you're if you're willing and and able to pick up that trash and carry it out, that would be awesome. If you're willing and able to take those pine boughs and distribute them into the woods or just disperse them into the woods, that's what we do. Um, Because that way, one, the trash is being removed from the area. You know, if there's food associated with it, it's not gonna attract animals to that area. Two, it's gonna discourage other folks from doing it. People, humans have this, this way of, of seeing other behaviors. And then sometimes people will want to do the same thing or think, hey, that, that last person did it. So maybe it's okay. What's the difference if I do it? If you're not comfortable taking care of those things while you're there, that's totally fine. You know, either way, you can please report it to us. If, if, if you want, you can call the front desk at the ranger stations. We do our own form of management from there and we try to get out and clean it up. But as you know, the wilderness is huge, so it takes us longer to get to everything. So we see you all as partners too in managing the land, this public place of wilderness. So yeah, but at at minimum, if you want to just give us a call and let us know where that is, then that is helpful for us. Well, thanks Megan for joining us on Keep It Wild this regular podcast feature on WTIP. Really appreciate hearing from you and and for sharing all of this information with our listeners. Well, thanks, Stacey. I'm super excited. It's a great time of year and super fun time for us too. This story comes from my dear friend, Ellen Hawkins. She's vlogged a lot of time in the wilderness, including a lifetime of being a wilderness ranger for the Forest Service and one of our leading resident naturalists. It's about a very close encounter she and her partner at the time, Gary, had with a wild wolf who literally knocked on their window one cold winter night. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Stacy. It's so lovely to have you here on the Boundary Waters podcast. I'm just so excited to hear more about the wolf at the window story. About how many wilderness trips do you think you've done in a year of your life? Two eight-day trips a month and, you know, probably maybe five months, maybe 10 eight-day trips. When you were doing 10 eight-day trips, what was your job? Well, I worked as a wilderness ranger for many years. And then I continued in the wilderness program for some years after that. And do you still go on trips? Yes, not nearly as much. I mean, we've been branching out and going to some other places. But um, we live close to the Boundary Waters. And so it's easy for us to go out on day trips. And, um, you know, we still spend a fair amount of time in the Boundary Waters every year. The reason that I wanted to talk to you in particular is because back in 1985, you had a very close and intimate wolf encounter that I think a lot of people will be interested in. And in fact, you wrote about this. You wrote um, the story called The Wolf at the Window, which was 
published in Audubon magazine in 1988, but when did the this event actually happen? Well, we first met this wolf in um, the first part of December of 1985. The Wolf at the Window by Ellen Hawkins. Thump, thump, thump. Loud and insistent knocking shocked us out of our sleep. Who would come to our snowbound Northwoods cabin in the middle of the night? Gary grabbed the flashlight and hurried into the kitchen. Then realizing that the sound was not coming from the porch entry, he swung the beam toward the living room's ground-level windows. I caught up just as he froze in his tracks. My God, Ellen, it's the wolf. The wolf was no stranger to you, is that right? That's right. We'd been watching the wolf out our windows for a week at that point. So describe the perspective that you were seeing of this wolf um, before it came knocking on your window. So we built our house on top of an esker, and there was a clearing at the base of the esker that was maybe a couple hundred yards from the house. Um, The clearing was right beside the, the edge of the forest, and so we were looking down at the scene. This is off the sawbill trail. Back at that time, we didn't plow the road at all, and so we parked out on the sawbill, and we were a mile from the, from the road, from the sawbill. Our only neighbor at that time uh, lived a half a mile away, and he felt the same way we did about wildlife, which is um, really, wildlife was the big reason we wanted to live there. One of the things that you did in the winter is you would get deer kill? Uh, There was a man who worked for the Department of Natural Resources who was doing research on brainworm in whitetails. And he would collect roadkill deer along 61. And when he was through with them, people could get those deer carcasses. Um, in some cases for food for sled dogs. In our case, we asked if we could have some for wildlife. We explained our situation, and he, he said that was fine. We felt that even though we know that it's, not, it's never a good idea to feed wildlife, but um, we thought we could get away with it just for our own really selfish fun uh, of watching wildlife because we were far from anybody who might be interested in shooting a wolf or, or um, trapping wildlife or um, any kind of wildlife, really. We, nobody around us was into that, and so we weren't worried about that. Um, we tried to be careful so that whatever came to the deer car- carcasses didn't associate us with the deer. And so we, looking down with our binoculars and spotting scope, had a great view. Uh, we seemed to be pretty much you know, out of sight, out of mind. Here's what you wrote about December 8th. When I first spotted the wolf at the deer carcass, I excitedly watched from the living room window and wrote in my journal, the wolf is finally up and I can see that he's quite dark, his guard hairs black tipped gray with lighter eyebrow spots and cheeks and reddish fur behind the ears. His tawny legs seem spindly above those great big feet and he had a radio collar. I didn't know there was anybody studying wolves in this part of the forest. A wolf does something magic to the place where he is. You noticed something right away about this particular wolf. What did you you notice about him? He was limping. Animals, of course, it's a dangerous place out there. And, you know, it's, we've seen animals with injuries. Um, you always hate to see it, especially when you're in, in the, you know, in the grip of winter. It was very cold and snowy winter. 
Um, so hunting's tough. And to think of a wolf trying to hunt with a some sort of foot injury, we didn't know yet what the injury was, but we could see that he was, um, he was limping. And uh, after a few days, we saw that not only was he limping, but he just was acting not like a healthy wolf. He was, um, he'd cough once in a while. And then um, also he wasn't, he wasn't just filled with exuberance the way wolves see him. When you see him out in the wild, he wasn't running around and happy and tail up. He was uh, tail tightly down. Two days later, you write, the wolf is still at the deer. In fact, if he ever leaves, it must be at night. He seems weaker and has long since conceded the older carcass to the ravens. Even so, they come sidling closer. The wolf curls his lip as he watches with his head on his paws. Suddenly, the ravens scatter in a mad flapping of black wings. The wolf must have snarled. The sixth day, December 13th, the wolf is back, you write. He's eaten a little but has spent most of the day lying between the two carcasses at the center of the clearing. He makes no effort to fend off the ravens, and they are all over both deer. Near sunset of that day, he was gone. Ten hours later, we were confronted by his face pressed against our window. What did that feel like when you saw Well, the it wall? was just a tremendous shock. I mean, I think probably almost right away we thought, well, maybe this used to be somebody's pet, so it's used to people. That's the only possible explanation we came up with immediately. But, um, you know, mostly we were just plain speechless and almost probably thoughtless because here is this wolf at the window. You know, you you see pictures of wolves and you maybe get glimpses at a distance, but here close up from, you know, just inches away, we're looking at the beautiful golden eyes of the wolf. He's alert at this point. He's just, his ears are pricked forward. He's looking right in at us. And we were just stunned because, you know, we just couldn't come up with a reasonable scenario that would bring a wolf up to our window. And plus, you know, the the knocking on the window, the thumping that we heard that sounded like knocking at first, we saw the wolf's nose thump against the window. So we know that's the behavior. How weird is that? We just, um, we just, were flabbergasted. So what what did you do? The house is earth sheltered and so initially the wolf was just um, standing right next to a ground level window Um, and so you know the wolf's head was more or less at at eye level for us standing inside the house. The wolf pulled away and walked around the corner of the house and um, we could hear the feet crunching in the snow, and then we didn't hear anything. But, you know, it had sounded like it was still really close. Well, it turns out the wolf had just walked around the corner up onto a drift of snow that led it onto the roof of the greenhouse whose roof came just to the bottom of the south windows of the house. And so now, when we um, pulled aside the window quilt and scraped the frost off the window so we could look out, there was the wolf now on the greenhouse uh, roof, and he was sitting up but leaning back against the window, looking in at us again. And so now we came to the question of, um, well, what should we do? What is your theory at that point? Well, I was thinking starvation. What we did right away was get together a little pan of food. We um, we had some chicken scraps, and um, 
let's see. I think we had some butter. That was all we could think of that a wolf might be <laughs> interested in eating. And we because oh yeah, don't forget the deer is down at the bottom of the hill. Doesn't the wolf have plenty to eat down there? Well, he did. As we later found out, there was still a lot of plenty of meat left on the deer. But we thought, well, it's going to be frozen hard. Maybe this wolf is sick enough where he. It's just hard for him to get off enough frozen meat to sustain himself. And so our impulse was to give him some easy to eat soft food. And that's what we that's what we tried to do. And did the wolf then eat? No. Um, we put the pan on the greenhouse roof and then Gary pushed it up with a, a handle of the snow shovel till it was, you know, right in front of the wolf. And he sniffed at it. He definitely was interested, but he didn't eat anything. Okay. And at this point, I think you mention in your story that you were worried that maybe the wolf was hypothermic. Yes. I mean, that would explain his unusual behavior if he was just, you know, in last stages of hypothermia. So we thought, well, he needs to, we need to get him warm. And so <laughs> we, um, uh, I went up to the shed to get the wood stove going in the shed thinking, you know, it's a, it's a space that heats up pretty quickly. And we thought, well, maybe if we can somehow catch the wolf, maybe we could get him into the shed. But when I came back from getting that done, Gary had gone in the house and grabbed a quilt and he tossed it up over the wolf and the wolf tolerated that. Um, you know, there was a bit of a jump, but, um, but then he just, the wolf just kind of, he'd been sitting up, but now he just settled down. So he's, you know, essentially lying on the greenhouse roof. Gary has the quilt around him and over him and pulls the wolf down the, down the slant of the greenhouse roof and gets him to the edge and then reaches underneath and picks the wolf up, which the wolf allows. And when I got back from the shed, here comes Gary coming around the corner of the house carrying the wolf. And so I just opened the door and in he came and he set the wolf down in the living room, pulled the quilt off and stepped back. And we got out of the living room, went into the kitchen. You can see over a little barrier into the into the room where the wolf was. And the wolf just um, sat up, didn't get up, but looked around. And there we were with the wolf in the house. I mean, it kind of goes against everything that you've learned to, to bring a, a wolf into your, into your living room. Was it instinctual that you knew somehow or what? Well, I know it's, uh, it does, it, it is pretty crazy, but um, the thing is that when you've watched, I think, pretty much anything for a week, and you've, you've come to know it a little bit, and you see that there's a problem, um, it's automatic to want to try to fix the problem, to try to help, and so we felt that... Um, we knew this wolf a little bit. You know, of course, we knew a lot about wolves by then because we'd read about wolves and, you know, we've had our own encounters, uh, uh, more normal encounters. And uh, we've, we'd had a lot of input from people who have also had various wolf experiences. And so all of that together, and the fact that we lived in that same environment that the wolf lived in, I don't know, it all contributed to our feeling as though we kind of knew the wolf. And so when somebody you know is in dire straits, 
um, you know, you, you just automatically do something. And so I can't really, I mean, it seems fairly outrageous that we just brought the wolf right inside, but, um, but there it is. That's what we did. So in your story, you write, the wolf looked around in a dazed kind of way. 25 minutes after the knocks on the window, he was inside. And now at this point, you go to get your neighbor, Tom. Right. That seems a little unusual, thinking back. But because it was, you know, it's a half mile, Tom's house, a half mile away. And, uh, you know, it was the middle of the night, very cold. But we used to go out at, uh, outside at night in the wintertime all the time. And, you know, so it, it doesn't seem, you know, that out of out of the norm. And uh, Tom had been over to watch the wolf too. And so we just knew that he would be really interested in this new development and we wanted him to be in on it. You can imagine the excitement and the mystery of it all coming back, the dark, dark night, stars, cold, trees popping, crunching snow. Um, and just, just with this mystery on our minds. What in the world is this wolf doing in the house? And now what? And you mentioned too that I think it was 25 below that night. Yeah. And you write, meanwhile, Gary was getting things ready in case the wolf got more active. He put more wood in the stove, partitioned off the living room as best he could, and put breakable things aside. By the time Tom and I arrived, the thin chunks of ice that had covered the wolf's fur had melted off. We watched him sit up, look around, and walk over to the small space between the lounge and the stove. He lay down there, his head and shoulders, leaning against the lounge, facing us. The wolf didn't seem to be upset, certainly didn't seem to be dangerous, and we couldn't resist. So we just all went in the living room and sat down, and um, there we all were facing each other. That's quite a, um, a moment of reflection, I'm guessing. Just be present oh, yes. with this wolf in your living room. Yes, yep. Yeah, it was, it was uh, we were awestruck. And, you know, I don't know what the wolf was. The, we were very worried because... Um, because the wolf went from just wheezing a little bit to uh, having more labored breathing. And um, as time went on, his breathing, in fact, became really difficult. He was, um, you know, it was gurgling. And I have asthma, I'm, and I've had pneumonia, and I'm familiar with that. We went from just admiring how beautiful the wolf was and thinking, wow, this is really something. The wolf is in our house, and, you know... Um, but now we were thinking, oh, oh, the wolf is really sick. And there was that big, thick radio collar around his neck. So Gary, who was um, just so not shy about stuff like this, he got a pliers and he went over and sat beside the wolf. And um, the wolf didn't react adversely. And so Gary put his hand out and touched the wolf, kind of stroked him a little bit and put his hand by the radio collar and the wolf was not doing it anything uh, worrisome. And so Gary just took the collar off and um, and then, you know, stepped back again. And I, I think that it was probably the wolf didn't even notice or, you know, I don't think it was that it, the collar was really impeding the wolf's breathing, but it made us feel better. You write this beautiful observation in the story our peeks into the living room were returned by a steady gaze from those bright golden eyes, 
Pretty soon, the presence of a wolf in the living room was irresistible, and we went in to sit on the window bench just to be closer to him. Quietly, we kept company with the animal that had always seemed to us to represent the essence of wilderness. What do you mean by that, Ellen? Wolves and wilderness are just such an obvious close fit. First of all, they're both beautiful, powerful, wild, fascinating. Wolves and wilderness, they're alike. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's and Wolves are, a, a, um, you know, they're a voice for wilderness. Wolves howl. Um, uh, many people hear that iconic sound like a like a loon calling. It's just one of those things that uh, many people's brains just can't help but put those two together. You hear a wolf and you're you're kind of in wilderness. There you are in wilderness when you hear that wolf. To me, the most important characteristic of wilderness that is federally designated wilderness is it's untrammeled. According to the Wilderness Act, it's untrammeled. It's free of human interference, uh, free of human influence, ideally. Um, and so are wolves. They don't uh, both operate just very fine without humans. They need each other. Wolves need to have, if not designated wilderness, just large wildlands um, to support their lifestyle. They can't be overcrowded, and uh, of course they need a big territory to hunt. Um, so wolves need wilderness. Wilderness needs wolves to be a complete healthy, functioning ecosystem, it's got to have its top predators. And at least for the boundary waters, that's wolves. And so, you know, they just go together very well. <laughs> because from the human perspective, um, wolves are a perfect sort of symbol of wilderness in part because here they are, an iconic animal. Um, nobody can say they're not, you know, really a special sort of an animal, but um, they're secretive, and there aren't that many of them, really. They're widely scattered across the vast expanse of a wilderness area, but they leave clues. And so we can be in wilderness, and we can find tracks, and we can, you know, find their droppings. We might hear them howl, and so you know they're there. And so that's part of what makes them a, a kind of a natural, one of the maybe many essences of wilderness, is that um, they're just a great hook for people. We can know something about them, and it, it really um, brings wilderness alive for us. I was camped on Saginaga on the far west end of Sag one time, and we'd settled in before bed, and we were sitting around the campfire, and we heard a pack of wolves mm -hmm. howling, and when you're out there and you're, you're really out there, you're living in it, and you hear a pack of wolves howling. Yeah. Yeah, that's just awfully special. And, you know, um, as you say that, it occurs to me that really the essence of wilderness has to do with how we experience it. It's, it has to do with experiences. You know, if you were to ask me now, what do I think is the essence? I don't. I don't think I would have written that sentence now because mm -hmm. I, I think of it more as a, I don't know a, more components that just than just the human and the wolf. It's the it's the whole picture as you say. You're out there and you're living in it. One time, Rick and I were on Lac Lacroix and we went down a narrow bay, and we were 
as often just going silently, kind of, you know, the canoe just drifting along very quietly. We inadvertently snuck up on three sleeping wolves. They were curled up right along the shore, sunny, autumn day, warm in the sun. There they were curled up. Suddenly they were aware that we were there and they jumped up and ran off and we jumped on shore and felt the round little beds in the grass where they'd been sleeping. We could still feel the warmth of the wolves in that grass. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I had a thought right at that moment that was something like, oh, this is the essence of wilderness, that whole experience. You're out there, you're part of it. Back to the story, you are still being present with the wolf Mm -hmm. in the living room, and you write, We began to feel hopeful. We had wonderful fantasies about a shy but friendly wolf recuperating with us until ready to return to the wild. We spent long moments just admiring him, the impressive breadth of his handsome head, the lush bunches of face ruff framing those compelling eyes. The grizzled fur, luxuriously thick, right down to the black tip of his tail. Until now, our main contact with wolves had been restricted to seeing their tracks along our trails or following the frozen river. So we were especially interested in seeing wolf feet close up. Between long, supple-looking toes grew feathery tufts of reddish fur. And now we could see that he had lost part of a front foot. A really significant thing at this point is that the wolf was acting alert and, um, you know, pricking its ears in the direction of maybe our whispering or, you know, the pan clanging down because we did again offer it food and water. So the wolf's acting alert, watching us, you know, following us with his eyes as we're moving around and uh, taking in his surroundings. But he never, I mean, we all know how uh, expressive wolves are. But um, this wolf, as near as we can tell, well, he didn't act in a way that was obviously frightened and certainly not aggressive, but yet alert. One thought that occurs is that the wolf was so out of it that that's why it's tolerating all of these strange things that are happening to it. But, you know, it didn't seem to us at the time that the wolf was out of it. The wolf seemed very present. Of course, we were worried. I mean, we knew that a wolf could easily have killed the three of us in no time at all if he had been, you know, a healthy wolf and if the situation was very different. But um, but even though we'd seen him snarling at the ravens and chasing the ravens, and, uh, you know, he didn't lift his lip a bit or in any way. You know, we were watching so carefully. He didn't indicate um, any aggression. We, we certainly didn't want to freak the wolf out by bringing him into the house. And, uh, you know, if he'd acted, um, if he'd struggled to get away at the first Gary certainly wouldn't have fought that. He would have just put him right down and, you know, off he'd go. It seems to me almost like you were following its lead. That's right. Yes, we tried to do that. Exactly. And the wolf seemed to be okay with being inside with us. When you wrote about um, having fantasies that the wolf would recuperate and, and be okay, I mean, that's such a lovely thing to think, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. But unfortunately, what really happened? 
The wolf was too far gone. The wolf was very sick. It became clear within a couple of hours. But the wolf's breathing grew more and more labored. And um, let's see, after the wolf had been inside, I think it was it must have been about four hours, the end came. Uh, the wolf was really struggling to breathe. Uh, the wolf went into um, a short convulsion, um, tried to breathe again. Um, his lips began to turn blue. We were down on the floor with him. I mean, it's not anything that you would think about. You know, we just were with our own will trying to help him breathe. <sighs> but he was just sick. He was, um, he was too far gone. He couldn't get enough oxygen. And um, after a, 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 a few more convulsive moments, he um, drew his last breath and died. And we were... We were right there with him. We watched his, um, his pupils get huge... We saw that he was, um, you know, his, his last breath was, was gone. And, um, and we grieved. So then what happened next, Ellen? You know, it seems, it seems a bit strange that we were so, you know, just incredibly moved by the Wolf's death because we'd only known him for a week, and of course we didn't really know him. It was just a such a fleeting contact, but yet we just felt such a connection. And um, in the face of his death, we, you know, just felt like um, doing some um, post-death thing, some sort of ceremony or something. But anyway, what we came up with was that um, I read a story aloud, uh, one of Aldo Leopold's stories, Thinking Like a Mountain. You know, the stories aren't similar, but the point is that the human involved, and in our case, three of us, have a revelation. Uh, we're, we're moved to um, think in a, th a certain way about the wolf's world that maybe we didn't seriously think before. So in the case of the story, Thinking Like a Mountain, Aldo Leopold, when he's young, shoots the last wolf on the mountain, and he thinks it's going to be a great thing because the deer herd will increase, so he thinks. And um, But instead, um, he, he realizes as he watches the wolf die in front of him, the wolf that he's just shot, he, he, he thinks the mountain doesn't agree with him. The mountain knows that it needs the wolf. He later, Leopold later, realizes that um, deer herds need the wolves. This wolf was um, had cemented our feelings of connection with, with his world. And so you read the story, and there's actually a family connection that you have to Aldo Leopold. Is that right? Yeah. My dad had been Leopold's first graduate student at the University of Madison, and um, he had been just a key figure in dad's life. Leopold's land ethic was something that was just understood in our household as, as something that, um, you know, was an important tenet of our lives. The radio collar that the wolf was wearing was inscribed with the number 6530, according to the research of David Meech. David is 86 and is the founder of the International Wolf Center in Ely. 
pretty soon we went outside and we snowshoed around and we followed the wolf's tracks in that last week of its life. And then after that, I took the collar down to town, which is, you know, skiing out to the sawbill and getting the truck starting and driving down to Tofty. And Jerry Lowe had a standard station with a payphone, a, a phone booth. You know, everybody knew about Meech. His book, The Wolf, had come out several years before our experience. And, and you know, in Minnesota, he was just known as the wolf guy. And so, um, you know, it was no question as to who to, who to contact. Anyway, so Dave knew right away who we were talking about. He said, oh, my gosh, Wolf 6530. We were wondering what happened to that wolf. And so then that was just such a happy relief to know that we were going to go know more about the wolf. From the human's perspective, our wolf story started in 1973, and that's when our wolf's grandmother set up a territory uh, quite a bit west of us, um, outside the Boundary Waters, and eventually uh, she met a mate. They were the founders of what Meech and his colleagues called the Perch Lake Pack. Perch Lake is a little bit uh, north of Birch Lake, over just below Ely, not too far from Ely, and pretty much straight about 45 miles west of our house where we met the wolf. That was his grandmother, and then um, his mother was born a little little bit after that, and she and her mate were the, were the leaders of the Perch Lake Pack for quite a few years. And um, our wolf was born in, I think it was 1982, and um, he lived there on that home territory for a couple of years. Two of his siblings were also radio-collared, and uh, as young wolves usually do, they all dispersed, but they had, you know, it's interesting how different they were. The, our wolf's brother, after one year at, at Perch Lake Territory, headed northeast. I believe it was 150 miles later that he was trapped and killed by a trapper in Ontario. Then uh, the sister of those wolves. She stayed in her natal territory for a while, and then she roamed around a little bit. She went west first and um, eventually found a, a mate that didn't work out. She They weren't able to raise a their first litter for some reason. She ended up um, just right adjacent to, to her natal territory. And then our wolf, he stayed at home, Perch Lake area, for a couple of years, and then he took off and he traveled northeast and ended up in the Alice Lake area, uh, loosely speaking. He was, you know, when you look at the map that show his locations, he was all over the place, but more or less in the Alice Lake area. The summer before his death, we were on Hub Lake, and we went up for, from Hub. We, were, we took a day trip up towards Fenty, so that's roughly down below Little Saginaga. And the wolf was located just three miles away from where we found wolf sign droppings and tracks on the Hub Lake and Fenty Lake portages. So, you know, of course, it's very unlikely that that was our wolf, but it could have been. And whether or not... We were close, kind of close to the wolf at that time. I think knowing that we were in such close proximity outside of that final experience we had with him, it just really helped us focus on the amazing amazement that humans feel about 
the wolves' traveling abilities, how they take off into the unknown, these sociable animals who like to be with their packs. They often are just alone for months and looking for a place that, well, who knows what all they're doing, but you know, our assumption is that ultimately they're looking for a place where they can set up their own pack, um, find a mate, have a territory to defend. Uh, but anyway, to think of them just going through this difficult terrain not knowing the best way to get from one point to another or any or even what points are out there that they might want to get to just striking off into the unknown it's very impressive the fall and winter when when he reached the end of his life when he ended up at our place um, he had been in the alice lake area and then um, his uh, radio signal was lost anyway his next known location was all the way south and east at our place, when the wolf came south, I bet he uh, encountered the Temperance River at some point and followed the Temperance down because, um, you know, that's a natural place for all of us to travel in the wintertime, easy going when, when it's frozen over and a wolf can cover so many miles in a short period of time. So the wolf probably followed the Temperance River down and then, um, you know, probably fo- followed somebody's trail, maybe maybe a fox's or something, uh, from the river to our clearing where it found the deer carcass. This is from the, the story. We sat there a long time grieving, and we looked at him closely. A thick winter coat had hidden the extent of his emaciation. Beneath it, his bones protruded. He weighed 55 pounds, but should have weighed at least 75. There was a tear on his lower lip, an old wound. His feet were supple, the pads squeezable and spongy. The wolf's right foot had lost three pads. On the left foot, one pad was mutilated. These two were old wounds, noted in Meech's records since 1983. Meech believes they were probably the result of the wolves getting caught in a fox trap, pulling the trap loose, and wearing it until the toes sloughed off. When you met with Meech and were able to see the path of the wolf, as you say, hundreds of miles, what else were you able to discover once Meech was involved? I think what struck us as is most important was that uh, Meech could say for sure that this was a wild wolf. You know, our, our our theory that maybe this had been somebody's pet was out the window. This was just a plain old wild wolf who had done this. And Meech said, well, it's not unknown for wildlife to come to human habitation at the end. Um, Meech mentioned raccoons, bobcats, bears. So anyway, that happens. But of course, that doesn't really answer why. I mean, I think that people tend to think, well, they're starving, they've come for food. And maybe so. In our case, we found out that the wolf had died of a fungal pneumonia. The Meech had a technician come up and pick up the wolf's body and take it back down to the um, to the university in St. Paul, and um, and it was discovered that the wolf had died of a fungal pneumonia. At that time, I don't believe there were other documented cases of that being a, a natural cause of mortality among Minnesota wolves, but to be susceptible to pneumonia, our wolf was probably impaired. Well, it could have been malnourished. It, it may well have had trouble hunting because of its injury, and uh, plus it's hunting on its own. It wasn't didn't have a pack, at least at the at that time. And so um, so our wolf may have been malnourished, 
susceptible to the pneumonia, and then, you know, having that super cold weather finished him off. You've written, we'll never know what motivated him to come our way. I can only say that I'm grateful to Wolf 6530 for sharing his last desperate moments of life. His act gave us a sense of connection with his world that we would never have had. And our commitment to live in harmony with that world has been strengthened. In all that time, I'm still befuddled by why the wolf did it. And of course, there can't be an answer. It's just plain a mystery. We can't know the wolf's mind. In a way, it's a it's one of those mysteries that you just have to let be, but yet we can't help but speculate. Many people who hear this story assume that the wolf came for food or warmth. For the the warmth thing is easily um, discounted because it, it you know the clearing was just way too far away from the house to for the wolf to sense any warmth. We knew thanks to the tracks. Um, and and that's thanks to the fact that there had been no snow in the entire week the wolf was there. And so we were able to say for sure the wolf had never come up the hill to the house until that last night. As far as food, the wolf may have smelled something good up at the house. But um, the fact that it, even though it sniffed at it, but it didn't try to eat any of the food or even, you know, lick any anything we offered it, seems to indicate that the wolf didn't come for food. You know, who knows, if the wolf had been with a pack mate, um, sick, maybe at its end, it might have just curled up next to its to its pack mate and died, and that would have been the end of it. But the wolf didn't have anybody with it. And in some sense, the wolf chose to come our way. You know, my own feeling is, and I really am just, it's hard for me to actually come out and say this, because um, I guess just because I know Many people will tend to discount it, but I just feel that the wolf felt some sort of kinship with us on some level, and we certainly felt a kinship with that wolf. This is nothing that could ever be proved, and you know, I'm certainly not sure of it myself, but I just think the wolf, on some level, didn't want to die alone. You know, it came up to, um, to die with us. I'm thinking about the wolf doing that weird poking with his nose, knocking at the window, you know, it just, um, the rhythm of it happens to fit with the words kinship with all life. And, you know, I just think of those two together and it makes sense to me. That was a wolf's message to us that we have a kinship with all life. And how has this experience bearing witness to the end of this wolf's life, how has that changed the way that you think about wolves I think that experience, together with just my years of observing different wildlife out in in nature, the individual is more important to me. When you think of wildlife, in a way, you're supposed to think about uh, populations. You're supposed to think in terms of, um, oh, you know, the the wolves of the upper Great Lakes, or, you know, you think of the geese of the Mississippi Flyway, or I think maybe even before the wolf, but certainly after the wolf died in our house, I'm much more apt to think about the importance of individual lives. And so, you know, we may say, well, so what if one uh, gross beak hits the window and dies? Um, well, it's a particular gross beak who's different from every other gross beak and didn't have the same qualities, the same personality traits as all the rest. And so the individual matters so much. I think that's something that 
the wolf experience really uh, reinforced in me. I'd like to know, did you observe more wolves after this event? Well, as a matter of fact, just a week later, there was a pack of wolves there. And, you know, they just, um, they were all healthy, at least everyone that we could see, was just uh, healthy, exuberant, um, athletic. And so they soon hauled all the deer carcasses into the woods where we couldn't see them. And so that was the end of the story as far as those wolves went. And then over the years, we've had really lots of um glimpses of wolves and a few notable experiences. Well, thank you for writing your story. Now I too will carry that wolf with me because you wrote it. So thank you, Ellen. Well, thank you for really shining a spotlight on the incredible behavior of this individual wolf. After hearing Ellen's extraordinary story, our podcast producer, Stacy Drulard, reached out to the International Wolf Center in Ely to learn more about David Meech's Wolf Research Project and ask about similar encounters with wolves. My name is Giselle Narvaez Rivera. I am the wolf curator at the International Wolf Center in Ely, Minnesota. Do you have a lot of people who bring in collars or wolf remains to learn more about the wolves in in our region? That's a great question, and it is a very um, very special story, I would say. That's not very common, and it's not super common for people to bring in the wolf remains or collars. And I will say that conservation officers, they often do bring remains for us to conduct necropsies, which essentially consist of examining physical condition of the wolves, we estimate their age, determine the sex, and help find or determine what's the cause of death. Sometimes these wolves are colored, uh, sometimes not, most often not. Um, that project that David Meach was conducting back in the day is no longer running, and I think there's only maybe one wolf left with a color. We are often contacted by local people that might see wolves and ask questions or report sightings or unusual behavior, which we then, kind of our role there is to report to the proper authorities. And we also try to help and serve as consultants. That project from our, our founder here at the, in the area, it was through the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey and other agencies. And we weren't ourselves conducting the research, but our role within that was to use those findings and provide that science-based education. And we still have some of the equipment that Dave used during that research, like telemetry equipment or collars. And we use that a lot for, for education programs and give people an example of the kinds of methods that researchers use. And what are the wild wolves of the Boundary Waters doing right now? Yeah, um, as you know, wolves live in packs. Those usually consist of parents, offspring, which is the breeding pair and their pups from the current year and often from previous years. So around this time of the year, we're entering the breeding season. So there's hormonal changes that result in behavioral changes, and that often will lead to these pups or yearlings or older offspring to disperse, which means to leave their pack in search of 
their own territory, a mate, to form their own pack or family. This act of dispersal is also influenced by other things like resource availability. So if there's food scarcity, there's maybe not enough food to go around the family, and this may cause some further tensions or push for them to disperse. Um, and as you know, this winter for Minnesotans um, has been pretty mild, at least in comparison to previous year, which means wolves are having a little bit of a hard time caching uh, that you know their usual prey. And while they're having a hard time, a mild winter kind of works in favor of some other wildlife. So deer maybe are having a little bit more luck maybe for food availability, forage, travel. So that's kind of what we're seeing right now. And then breeding season is, yeah, going to start. So back to the story of wolf number 6530. Mm-hmm. Have you at the center documented other instances of wolves or other animals seeking out humans if they're injured or near death? We haven't. However, it does happen that wild animals near death or injured will try to approach human settlements because they're desperate or they can sense that they can find some sort of resource like food or refuge available for them. You know, wolves make the news a lot. What are you seeing are maybe the three biggest threats to the wolves who inhabit the Boundary Waters ecosystem today? One of the biggest concerns or threats that we have in this area is definitely the human conflict or human-wolf interactions part. I have to say people's values, which are shaped by their cultures, experiences, their upbringings, will drive a lot of those attitudes towards wolves. And these attitudes, we know that they range from reverence to hatred. These two extremes, they can be very extreme. And on one of those, they may win, they may want to eliminate them from the landscape. And on the other extreme, you may have those people that think that feeding wolves is a good thing and will help them. And that wolf will probably appreciate that, right, that opportunity. But in the long term, this may cause them to get a little bit too comfortable around people and then start associating people with food being provided. The wolf then might not really differ between who's going to give them food and who's not. Down the line, if that wolf has pups, they're going to learn that too and cause this multi-generational issue. And these wolves then are going to be considered a safety issue and potentially be removed by state or federal authorities. So this is, I would say, one of the biggest threats that we have is that human-wolf conflict. So here we try to just provide that science-based education perspective and try to educate the public about, hey, you might be thinking that it's helpful to feed wolves and you, you really think you're doing a good deed, but in the long term, it's actually causing them harm and um, it's not a very sustainable activity. Okay. Is there anything else you want to add? You know, I think it was a, a, a very special moment and you want to help. You want to be helpful. Um, but just be aware that there's a certain risk to bring in a wolf. And I'm sure Ellen might have thought of that as well. There's a certain risk if you're going to bring a wolf inside your homes. I I don't think we would suggest for you to do that. I think this was a very, a very special case potentially and a very strange one. Also, if you're hoping for them to go back into the wild, sometimes that doesn't work as well because, again, you have that positive association with people and they might not dis- distinguish between who's the person that I can approach and who's not. And 
we kind of want to avoid them approaching people in general. But I, of course, understand. And I think I would have had a hard time, too, not trying to help the wolf, right? Well, I, I very much appreciate your time. And, and thank you for sharing yeah. your knowledge and experience. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stacy. It was a, my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. More stories are headed your way each and every month. The Boundary Waters podcast is supported by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and WTIP North Shore Community Radio. Our theme song is by The Bitter Spills. <laughs>